Hi, and welcome to the 48th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This time we're with Jessie Smith from the Radical AI Podcast. She's also studying a PhD at the Department of Information Science at CU Boulder. We chat about Radical AI Podcast and defining the word radical, what AI is, and discovering new ethical issues using science fiction in her podcast, The Sci-Fi in IRL. We chat about who is responsible for AI. We also discuss some current hot topics like GDP2 and automated cars hitting people. We look at how we should value computer-generated creativity, co-designing systems, and creating ethical real-life example projects in CS education. And right at the end, we have a brief chat about AI consciousness. You can find more episodes of the Machine Ethics Podcast at machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net, or you can follow us on Twitter at machine underscore ethics or Instagram machine ethics podcast, all one word. If you'd like to support us, then support us on patreon.com forward slash machine ethics or get in contact for more information about sponsorships. Thanks again for listening and hope you enjoy. Cool. Hi, Jess. Welcome to the podcast. If you could just quickly introduce yourself, uh, who you are and what do you do? Of course. So uh, my full name is Jesse J. Smith. That's what you'll see online in many different spheres, but you can call me Jess. And I am currently a PhD student at the University of Colorado in Boulder in the United States. And I am pursuing a PhD in information science. Um, totally okay if you don't know what that means, because I still don't know what that means. <laughs> but broadly speaking, my research specifically kind of um, bridges the gap between the uh, computer sciences and the social sciences. So I'm taking a very holistic approach towards um, issues of ethics and fairness and equity, specifically as it relates to artificial intelligence and machine learning. Cool. Awesome. So all those things are kind of the meat of what we like to discuss on the Machine Ethics Podcast. So thanks very much for coming on. You're in good company. And actually, um, as well as doing your PhD, um, you are doing a podcast. So I came to you uh, through the Radical AI podcast. So check that out. I'm sure if people listen to this podcast, they also um, maybe listen to other podcasts um, in this area. And, and the Radical AI podcast is awesome. So go check that out. Um if you could, could you just give us a quick promo? Um, <laughs> Shameless yeah. promotion. That's uh, <laughs> that's actually my co-founder and co-host's job, not mine. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, that was a, a plug for Dylan, who was recently on your podcast as well. But um, yes, the shameless plug is we are called The Radical AI Podcast. It is co-founded, co-created, co-produced and co-hosted by um, me and Dylan Doyle-Burke. And we've been around for about five months now. We launched in mid-April of 2020. So we are, um, it's kind of like a quarantine baby, this podcast. <laughs> and uh, if you want to know more, check out our website, radicalai.org. The podcast itself is um, similar to yours in that we focus on all things AI and ethics, though we like to joke that um, AI has broadly expanded to mean all things technology related and ethics has expanded to mean all things society related. So really just get your society and technology fix on this podcast. 
And um, in general, one of our main missions is to promote the underrepresented voices in the field as opposed to those who stick to the status quo and who get all the limelight. So we really focus on sticking to um, people, topics, ideas, and stories that are, quote, radical <laughs> and um, that are underrepresented in the field and also that push the agenda a little bit and make people squirm in their seats and feel a little bit uncomfortable because they're not easy topics to unpack. <laughs> yeah. And I think at the end of each podcast, you also challenge the interviewee to um, say what radical means to them and, and how that that word is uh, in relation to the ethics side. How does it fit in with um, the um, technology as well. Yeah, no, thank you for pointing that out. That's a big part of the project in general is to kind of co-define with the community that is uh, the radical AI community, but also the broader AI ethics community, what this word radical means as it relates to AI, because obviously radical is a word that's been around for centuries, if not longer. And it's, yeah, exactly. You're doing the shaka. It's been adapted by many different kinds of cultures, but of course it's, uh, has its historical roots in the black radical tradition. And so Dylan and I I don't want to be the people who bastardize a word that has such historical meaning. And so it's important to us to really ask the community what they think this word is evolving into as it relates to technology specifically. And um, that's a part of our project is really just asking every single interviewee, how do you define the word radical as it relates to AI? Do you think your work is radical? And eventually um, in the works, we have some projects to try to kind of... Um, get get all of that or glean all of those answers from our um, guests, from our previous guests on the show and come up with maybe some broader definition of what radical AI really is. But uh, a brief a sneak peek into that is that it has a lot to do with systems of power and oppression and getting to the root of um, what is some of the problems that have existed in society for a long time when it comes to power. And and you can see that with the word radical too, just looking at like the linguistics of radical. If you if you um see the the radical I think it's like it's Greek roots in different um, domains. So like in mathematics, the radical is like the root of the number. In um in linguistics, the the radical means like the the root of a word, and in uh, botany, radical means like the root of like a plant, and so that's kind of where we get like a lot of our. That's actually where we got our logo um, inspiration as well for the podcast. It's this like robot hand holding up this plant, and like uh, these imaginary roots coming out of the bottom because it has this soil in its hand, and so it's all about getting to the root of these issues, which is why we ask such tough questions to our guests on our podcast. Yeah, that's that's really cool and really interesting. I, I wasn't like aware that it had such a rich kind of etymology almost. Um the the word. Yes, that's the word I was looking for. Thank yeah. you. Etymology. Et etymology, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to I mean, when I'm doing this podcast, I'm always searching for words and never quite finding them uh, when it really matters, you know. It's quite irritating. It's like, oh, <laughs> I know what I mean. Um anyway, so the 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 first question we ask on the podcast, Jess, um, is what is AI? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I feel like you just put a mirror up to my mm. face because I'm seeing uh, now what it feels like to be put on the spot. On the show. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that one. 
it's part of the deal. Um, AI. Okay, well, let's break it down. Let's break down the etymology of this word, why don't we? So we have artificial intelligence. Um, so I've, I've actually seen a few talks about people defining AI as it relates to machine learning, because there's like also this contention about like, is AI machine learning? Are they the same? Are they different? And so um, in the talks that I've seen, they were discussing that an artificially intelligent thing obviously has some sort of intelligence, but then we have to ask, okay, well, what does it mean to be intelligent? And um, that's a tough question to answer because what does it even mean for a human to be intelligent? <laughs> does it mean to have a conscience? Because if that's true, then we shouldn't be calling AI AI as it exists today, because as far as we know, no AIs have consciousness yet. Uh, does it mean for it to have the ability to learn? Well, okay, so then we should probably call dogs and cats and cows and pigs and other animals intelligent because they also have the ability to learn. So if we define, I mean, for me, I have to ask myself, what do I think intelligence is? And I would probably assume, maybe I'll just stick with the ability to learn for now because I think that's the easiest definition. And then the artificial piece of AI, um, I'm assuming comes from uh, the fact that it's not a human <laughs> and I guess not an animal. So maybe artificial means non-living, um, but then we have to ask what it means to be alive. <laughs> and that's also like a super philosophical deep question. So I'm, I'm answering your question by not answering hmm. your question and saying that I really have no freaking idea, <laughs> but maybe it means non-living ability to learn. <laughs> And before we started the podcast, you asked me how long this would be. And at this rate, it could be all day <laughs> um, if, we, if we dig into this, uh, if we keep going. So, I mean, that, that definition is as good as any, any others, really. Um, you know, we always ask this question and we get such really um, different answers. And it really comes back to, you know, your cultural history, ideology, the technology itself, you know, how much science fiction you've read, all these different things contribute to kind of how you think about um, and your opinion on AI. And, you know, if you're deep into it, then you might think it's, you know, clever statistics, um, you know, or if you have no idea, then you might think it's something completely different. So it's always nice to tease out these kind of different themes and different opinions um, before we get started so we kind of know where we are, basically. Yeah. Sorry, I don't have a more explicit definition. Mm. I'll have to think about that. It, it's a much more existential question than I expected it to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's, that's totally cool. Um, so you run the, the Radical AI podcast, check it out. Um, but you also, I saw that you co-host the Sci-Fi NRL. Um, yep. Could you just give us a quick um, intro to that? Totally. Yeah. So Sci-Fi IRL started about a year ago in fall 2019 with um, a colleague of mine, Shamika Goddard, who is also in the same year of her PhD as I am in the same program at CU Boulder. And um, it's kind of a much broader view of technology ethics. So it's not focused at all on specifically AI and machine learning, but it's more just about how um, technology in general has uh, ethical concerns, but we approach them through the lens of science fiction. So every single month we come up with a new episode based off of some sci-fi story that we either read or watched or um, listened to. I, I guess those are the only really three mediums you can uh, consume a sci-fi story uh, 
uh, doing. But yeah, so we we listen to or we experience a sci-fi story and then we come together and we talk about what ethical concerns were raised in that story as they relate to contemporary and modern uh, technology issues and concerns. And so it's a good way for us to take a step back from our comfort levels and what we know to exist in the world today to think and speculate about what the future um, could be and what the present is, but maybe we're not willing to admit <laughs> and to to really just take um, a different lens and a different approach towards thinking of tech ethics issues. Oh, that's really cool. Um, are there some things in there, some like themes that keep like coming back to or keep arising in that um, when you're looking at those different stories? I mean, things like Black Mirror and stuff like that comes to mind as a reflection of things in the present, um, which we might not want in the future. And, you know, are there kind of like paramount issues that we should um, sort out now and that you can see um, like throughout science fiction being an issue or like re-arising and that we can probably do, you know, stuff with right now? Oh, geez. Well, we, we kind of cover everything from very closely related to today to like very far off dystopic sci-fi future. Um, so in terms of themes, ironically, the one that keeps coming back up is uh, robot consciousness, which I don't think is quite relevant to us yet. Maybe in five, 10 years, we'll see. Um, maybe in 50 years, maybe never. But uh, I, I think the one that uh, probably has come up at least in a few episodes that is really relevant to today is um, responsibility of technologists. And so asking who is responsible when things go wrong, especially in code and with the technologies that are created. Is it the company, the organization? Is it the coder, the engineer? Is it the designer of the technology? Is it the manager? Is it the person who was using the technology because they signed their life away by using it? Or is no one responsible? And what is the answer? We're figuring it out. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I just like to, you know, probe a little bit into these these answers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I like a flip-flop sometimes between thinking that this is like a really big issue and that this is not an issue at all, really, sometimes. Um, but I guess when you're talking about these kind of systems that learn and, you know, you could treat them as tools, but then you start... Uh, thinking about how they're going to be used by governments or open source or hackers and, and it starts becoming murky and as they're learning different things you know who's responsible at, at the time of you know learning from different people especially if they're in their homes and people teaching them stupid things and they just learn those stupid things um uh so yeah so it becomes problematic and some people would have a hard line and just go nope this is a tool and it's you know someone sold this to you and they're responsible um but others you know maybe yourself lean on yeah the other side so, no definitely yeah. and i mean as we talk about like what it means for something to be artificially intelligent too then i wonder in the future as things begin to learn and teach themselves and change fundamentally from what they were originally coded to do or maybe not fundamentally because of course unless robots are changing and wanting to kill society which i'm very uh, adamantly against that view of, of ai but um for the most part if a machine is is teaching itself and changing in some way and then it does something that's harmful to a human then really like in theory the ai should be the one that's accountable and responsible and at fault but you can't really send an ai to jail or send an ai to the to you know serve its time for the 
the harm that it did to society. So, um, so what do you do? And I don't think we know yet. <laughs> this, this has happened a few times already, even a few years ago when, um, the Lyft self-driving car hit that woman in Arizona, um, it was, I think it ended up being the driver's fault because they were distracted and listening to the voice while they were driving. Um, but it, I, they were wondering for a little while if it wasn't the driver's fault, if it was just a car malfunction, who would be the person that would serve time for the death of another human? Because that's not anything that we've really encountered before in technology. And even more recently with this whole GPT-3 hype that's happening. I think there was an article in um, The Guardian a few weeks ago that a lot of people were buzzing about that was like this amazingly written article by or using GPT-3 software that if you haven't read it, uh, should definitely read it. It's super terrifying. And it's basically this AI that's trying to convince us that we should not fear AI, but uh, instead that we should just fear ourselves. And also very existential. So maybe on point with the topics we're talking about today, Day. But then you also have to ask, maybe not in terms of harm, but in terms of other regulatory questions, you know, who is responsible for copyright of an article that was written by an AI? So there's other questions that come up that are maybe not quite as pressing or terrifying, but they're still interesting because you ask yourself, like, do robots have rights in the same way that humans do? Can they break those rights? Do they have to serve time in the same way that humans do? And I mean, that's just a super existential question that actually we have an episode on Sci-Fi IRL coming out talking about uh, next month. So these are all unanswered questions that uh, I have no answer to, but they're, mm. they're fun to speculate about. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're really, really interesting. And um, in fact, we had a previous episode with uh, David Gunkel um, with Robot Rights. So check it out that one previous episode, uh, talking all about uh, digging further into whether uh, artificial intelligence should have rights. Um, so you brought up some hot topics there, Jess. <laughs> so I just thought I'd uh, dig into those a little bit. Um, so the automated car accident, actually, that was, there was a recent um, hearing about that. And I think you're right. They found the, the driver negligent. And it, it's, it feels strange because it's almost like, you know, they were set up to fail, right? They were given the system and the system doesn't need your help. It's supposed to be automated and it works unless... It doesn't work, and then then what are you going to do? And you know, have a very short amount of time to then be cognizant of what's going on and and um, take control. Um, so I think that's a it was, you know, it's a difficult thing to do, um, and it's a, it's difficult to point the finger when the whole idea of automated cars uh, in this whole industry is is around this idea of kind of um, automating and, and taking away control. Um, so it's really terrifying for the industry that these sorts of things have happened. Um, that and, and some of those um, manufacturers have kind of scaled down operations because of it. But, I mean, the imperative is kind of still there, the, the kind of ethical idea that hopefully we'll have um, better travel, uh, you know, less crashes, uh, more time, um, greener places, less roads, because we won't need, uh, we won't be sitting in traffic all the time and it'll be more efficient and all these sorts of things, all these um, great things um, that we do want. Uh, and then we have this kind of emotional reaction, um, almost kind of um, animal reaction to things, you know, could possibly kill you and 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 get in the way of um 
all this happening. Um, so it's it's a really interesting um, and how that that rationale kind of affects and how we feel about it. Um, and also, you talked to you about the GTP article on the Guardian, which was um, which was quite funny. Um, they highlighted in the in the article about it actually that the it was sort of kind of a curation article. So they kind of went um, here are here's a starter for ten, um, make me some stuff, and then it produced that article that it came out with about you know coming in peace and stuff and not killing humans. <laughs> um, but you know those um, writers were were taking a cut of what was a best fit, what was what what worked best for um, something interesting to read. So it's this kind of human. Uh, machine process interface um, you know curatorial practice they're kind of collaborating on the on the end product and it's really interesting for you know the future of copyright the future of uh, creativity and what it means to be for you know what does it mean for artistic endeavor um, using some of these tools um, and yeah so I'm going to go and do that and make loads of money so bye Yeah, it's definitely it's a question of almost asking ourselves, like, what makes us human? Like, what is it about us that is essentially our humanness? And what does AI threaten to take from us in that? And there's this YouTube video you reminded me of uh, that I saw years ago before I was even uh, aware that AI ethics was a thing. And um, maybe you can link to this too if you have show notes. It's called Humans Need Not Apply. It probably has a ton of views now. I think it, it got pretty popular for a while. And in the video, they they discuss uh, basically the automation of the human workforce and how we need to fear, in so many words, uh, the fact that our jobs are just not going to be the same because automation and robots are just going to take over every job that we could possibly think of. And then at the end, he says, oh, except we're all creative snowflakes and humans can take to work in the field of creativity and we can make art. And that's what makes us so unique. And then he has this skeptical look and he comes on and says, oh, wait, just kidding. AI has already been making music. AI already makes art. AI is super creative, too. So we're not really immune to having those jobs um, stay strictly for humans either and and that just reminded me of that that yeah robots and and i should say ai not robots um ai is super creative and it's uh it's a shame that some of that creativity will kind of just be dismissed as you know mathematical algorithms and equations and geometry because some of the things that i've seen ai create are honestly just incredible and and i wish that i could give credit to something (laughs) that Mm. was alive (laughs) but i can't yeah and it's it's kind of interesting because you're a human and you're kind of making meaning out of it (laughs) for yourself so it's kind of isn't that fine (laughs) you know you're getting value and 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 you're you know you're seeing the value in it essentially so um Wow, that is such a deep question. I'll have to think about that one for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of where where does it lie? You know, what's okay? Um, when do we need to start caring about um, attribution? That's interesting um, in value. But anyway, um, so let's like do a rough segue. Um, so 
Talking about um, you and your background, Jess, so you come from this kind of software engineering side and then you're now straddling kind of humanities and computer science uh, departments at the university in your PhD and trying to make sense of those two worlds, kind of um, cross-pollinating, you're kind of conduit, if you like. Um, so what's, what's the really exciting thing in the middle ground at the moment that you're concerned with? Yeah, there's a few research questions that I'm focusing on right now. And um, I'm co-advised, so I have two PhD advisors who um, are pretty, they're really good for my research questions in that one of my PhD advisors, Casey Fiesler, is uh, right now very heavily focused on ethics and um, education and asking qualitative questions, doing qualitative research and things like co-design, participatory design. And then my other advisor, Robin Burke, is uh, much more technical right now. And he's asking questions that are a little bit more nitty gritty for the engineers like how do we encode um, and optimize for fair treatment in an algorithmic machine learning system. And his lab is all about recommendation systems. So I've kind of been in the headspace of recommender systems for the last year, just because of the work that um, they were already doing. And so um, for me and my research and kind of bridging the gap between those two sides, right now, some of the questions that I'm wondering on the qualitative side, uh, it's questions, and let's stick to the example of recommender systems. So uh, uh, an example I use in this field that I think most people can at least uh, understand is uh, Spotify music. So let's say um, a qualitative question that I have for um, Spotify music is, uh, what does it mean to treat different stakeholders for Spotify fairly? So what does it mean to treat the musician fairly in terms of having their music recommended to users? What does it mean to treat a music listener fairly in terms of um, having recommendations that actually match their interests and aren't just stereotyping who they are? And then what does it mean for the system to be fair as a whole, so to treat everyone equitably and fairly given their different needs and interests? So that's like a qualitative question of like, what does it actually mean to treat them fairly? And then a quantitative question would be, well, how do we actually change the recommender system to incorporate things like re-ranking, which is um, this technique where you take a recommendation list and you basically just re-rank different items in the list based off of different fairness concerns and based off of uh, like a user's tolerance for diverse music. And so that's like a very algorithmic quantitative question. And then my mixed methods question, which is kind of uh, the meat of my work, because you can't really do the quantitative and the qualitative and mesh them without doing some sort of mixed methods, would be to then ask, how do we take the qualitative uh, definition of fairness or definitions that we're working with and like feasibly and pragmatically encode them into the algorithm using these re-ranking algorithms and fairness metrics in a way that actually doesn't um, contextually collapse what we discovered qualitatively, but actually like upholds the things that we learned and the fairness goals that we set qualitatively. And how do we make sure that those are actually enacted and encoded into the system in a way that, that does what we want it to do. So it's intentional instead of black box and opaque. <laughs> mm. And I guess like a lot of these services use your data 
to create the quantitative side, right? They, the, the interaction data, the usage data, um, anything they can get hands on to then make those suggestions or recommendations. Um, but for like, I don't know, recommendations of these sorts of systems like Spotify and things like that, you could almost ask, you know, I, ha I haven't seen you click on any jazz recently. Do you still want to be shown jazz <laughs> or like, you know, anything like that? Um, I, I, do you want to see much more different things um, open, you know, to, um, you know, uh, open your eyes to some some different kinds of music, which you may not want to not see before, like serendipitous. That's what I was looking for, serendipity. Um, does that come into it anywhere? Isn't it funny that it's such a strange idea to actually ask the user of an AI system what they want and need? <laughs> and by funny, I mean like quite sad, uh, because that's totally what should be happening. So this, when I keep when I say co-design, because I realize this isn't a term that is commonly known, that's what I mean is um, in participatory design too. It's asking um, the people who are impacted by the system to help design the system and to participate and collaborate and communicate. And so um, that's exactly what I'm trying to do is uh, using or doing participatory design and co-design with all the different people who are impacted and impact the system. So asking the people who consume recommendations like Spotify listeners, hey, what would it mean to you to be treated fairly on this platform? And this is a study that um, it's an interview study that I did with uh, one of my collaborators, Nassim Samboli, and we're currently working on a paper um, that'll be hopefully accepted into a conference soon. And, um, and we kind of dissect what it means for uh, qualitatively for the consumer of recommendations to be treated fairly. And then the next step would be asking the producers of recommendations, the people like the musicians or the YouTube content creators or the LinkedIn employers, things like that, um, what, what it means for them to be treated fairly in a system. Because what we find is usually these two stakeholders actually have conflicting needs and wants. And so then we take all those conflicting and convoluted needs and wants and we show them to the engineers, which is like the final step. And we say, okay, here's what your users actually need and want. <laughs> How do we feasibly make this happen? How do we make this work while also having like one businessman in the room that's there to say, well, this is our bottom line and we have to make money. <laughs> so mm. having everybody in the room. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, uh, I think the YouTube example is a really good one because it's is rife for like things happening on YouTube algorithmically and you hear about all these things about getting into this kind of YouTube hole where you're starting to be shown, you know, really suspect stuff. Um, and it's through your interacting with it and the way the algorithm is choosing stuff to keep you on, which is... Conspiracy you know, theories. Yeah, all those conspiracy <laughs> theories and all those different things that you get shown... Um, because it it keeps you there, like it, it drives um, good interaction and stuff like that. So they're almost optimizing for the the wrong metric, almost essentially, maybe uh, or more of a business metric. Um, so it'd be really nice to see how co-design could help out in that situation. Um, but maybe we'll have to wait uh, for some insider <laughs> information or something. Working on it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Well. Anyway. Um, um, so I was going to ask you about kind of the education side as well. So as you, you're interested in, 
you know, that area. And I always feel like there should be kind of more reflection, debating, ethics and things like this um, incorporated in the in, in the educational process. How can we expect our designers, developers and, and, and citizens of the future to, to make good things if we're not kind of, you know, enabling them to do that? So I wonder if you had any thoughts about, um, you know, what, what we should be doing there and how can we... Um, help our, our designers, developers make good products? Oh, ben, I'm so glad you asked this question because this is my last uh, leg of my research and my my uh, career interest here is the education piece. Because I do think that's the missing piece in all of this. Um, I think there's a lot of people that are uh, emerging in this space that are there to critique the space. I think there are a lot of people that have been in this space that are making the space, like the engineers, the coders, um, the designers. But I, I think there's something missing in um, education and awareness building that helps translate the critiques to the practice. And so um, in my opinion, I think that all computer scientists should be trained to uh, ethically speculate, as um, we like to say in, in my lab that's advised by Casey Fiesler, um, to ethically speculate, which really means just to think about like the the harms that our technologies can cause. So to think about the the people who will misuse a technology, to think about the people who will abuse a technology, to think about um, the unintended consequences of a technology that are, of course, no fault of the engineer or the computer scientist, but are just you know, entropy in the universe <laughs> causing chaos and that it might not be anything that we can predict, but to think through those things before making an algorithm that predicts gender or making an algorithm that predicts sexuality, you know, like thinking through what people might use those things for before making them. And this is something that's pretty near and dear to my heart because uh, it's the reason why I started in this AI ethics space in the first place because I was getting my undergraduate degree in software engineering. And the story that I, I've told a million times now, but I'll, I'll say again, just for fun here, is that uh, I was taking my very first data science class. Um, and the, the semester that I was taking the data science class, I was also taking the one single required ethics course for computer scientists at my university. And uh, coincidentally, they fell on the same day. And so in the morning, I would learn data science. And then in the afternoon, I would learn computer ethics, which largely related to a lot of data science topics just because of AI and machine learning and ethical conundrums, as you know. And so there was one specific morning, I think it was uh, a rainy fall morning. Um, oh, no, this was in the spring. It was a rainy spring morning. I went to uh, my data science class and my professor taught us how to scrape the web and how to build a web scraper and uh, basically taught us this incredibly powerful tool that we can use to get information from any website without an API, which means without needing permission or asking permission from people to get their data. And then that same day in the afternoon in my uh, ethics class, in my computer ethics class, the professor told us exactly why um, scraping data from the web was so unethical and not okay. And I like had this this aha moment in my head where I was thinking, why the heck did I learn this in a different class instead of in my data science class? And the other 30 students who were in my data science class with me, they're not in this computer ethics class and they're not going to know that this is harmful and that they need to watch out with what they're 
uh, using this power for? And so I started thinking a lot about how there's this missing piece in computer science education in this accountability and responsibility of the computer scientists to think through what it is that they're creating, what it is that they're saying yes to from their engineering manager, what it is that they're um, building and sending out into society to fundamentally change society and to really ask if they're willing to do that and if they're wanting to do that and to make it more about, it's all about this intentionality, right? So asking like, are they coding with intention or are they just doing it to make money? And and I hope that if we are, if we do eventually include and incorporate social sciences, humanities, philosophy, critical race theory, um, a lot of like gender studies, you know, a lot of the really core components of social sciences, if we do incorporate those throughout the entire computer science curriculum so that it doesn't just seem like a one-off module that you have to check off, but it actually seems like it's a part of building computing technologies, then I think it'll fundamentally change the, the entire discipline of computer science. Yeah, yeah, um, I totally agree. Sounds awesome. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Great. Um, I think it's kind of nice um, in contrast to the UK system of, of higher education. The American system, you can kind of pair subjects. So you can have like major and minor. You, you have more opportunity to kind of um, join on to other courses in the first year or two, right? Am I? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I wish that in the UK system, they had more of that kind of, um, you know, you basically have your bubble and you're less likely to go outside of that bubble. It's kind of like more onto you because you're in this um, course area and there's very little cross-pollination there, um, as far as I remember from uh, my time at university anyway. Um, so it'd be nice, yeah, just to have that kind of cross-pollinating of, of ideas coming into, especially computer science. Um we did have Miranda Mulberry, who was championing um, ethics on the computer science course of Bristol. Um, so there are efforts happening there. And I've heard of other kind of uh, anecdotal things going on. So that's really, really positive. Um, but it is strange that you kind of you get taught these kind of techniques, these powerful you know, machine learning techniques and these technical um, aspects that you can apply to whatever you want in the world. And then you're not necessarily taught, you know, have an intention, um, reflect <laughs> on this stuff, you know, like uh, do good. Um, make sure you don't use these tools in a way that, you know, you don't want reflected badly on your grandparents or, you know, your, your spouse or, you know, people that you love and that that can be affected if it turns into a big thing or it runs wild or what have you. So it's really interesting that these things should really be paired up and go hand in hand with each other to make sense out of them. Totally. Yeah. So. Yeah. And you, you don't even have to ask or tell computer scientists to do good necessarily. Like we're not telling them they have to be, uh, you know, these saviors in society, but it's kind of like uh, Google's original motto, like don't be evil. Uh, I think it's important to train computer scientists to not be evil at the very least. <laughs> and in terms of embedding it into actual curriculum and like the, the feasibility of that, um, I have seen in practice that this actually makes computer science better to teach. And so over this last summer, I um, was the uh, graduate professor of a an introductory computer science course that was in the information science department, not the computer science department. So I had the freedom to kind of just make 
whatever I wanted out of it. And I restructured the curriculum to include ethics and social sciences and humanities throughout every single module and assignment that we did. And they learned exactly the same amount of coding that they would have in the other form of the class that didn't include ethics. But instead of me just teaching them, okay, here's what big data is and here's how we create a table using this data, I taught them, okay, here's what big data is, here's how data can be uh, subjective, here's how data can be super powerful and how data changes our lives, here's how you uh, give your data away to companies, here's how people exploit your data. So, you know, like making it almost more um, approachable and um like realistic, like, you know, showing them here's computer science, but here's how it relates to our day-to-day lives. And here's how it's super important to understand the power structures that are at play with the way that we code these technologies and the way that they're enacted in society. And all the students at the end of the class said that they absolutely enjoyed and loved all the assignments that had to do with like real life examples because it made it it made it um, tangible and it wasn't just like okay let's make a grocery store algorithm that creates like a a checklist where you check off your fruit that you have to get mm. at the store it was like no let's make a self-driving car algorithm that determines who to save <laughs> or who to kill and like of course the student's gonna find the second one more interesting <laughs> whoa so uh did they create anything that we can sell to Waymo or any one of those you know if uh, if so I'm getting touched hopefully not uh, at the end of the podcast with uh, me and Jess so stay tuned for our details um, so yeah I mean it sounds like it just makes it more real and um, I mean they're going to go off and work on projects that are going to be in organisations that are going to be making impact in the, in the real world so it just makes sense i know that sometimes they have that in design courses as well where they have real projects um brought in by companies and they have to work on them and it's just nice to make it a bit more concrete and you know not being too heavy-handed with the ethical stuff humanity stuff but just make it you know apparent that this is you know the system which we live in right um so it just kind of all makes sense so i think Mm -hmm. that's really cool yes um so do you have like a hope for AI in the future and, you know, something that you're working towards, some vision? Because um, we all love using and making technology, but I was just wondering if there's something that that is dear to you and something that you might be working towards and what does that look like to you? Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually really appreciate you asked this question because I do think uh, – as AI ethicists, it's important for us to come back to hope and to ask uh, about optimism for the future because it's really easy to just stay pessimistic and to want to crawl into a hole and, and never come out and see what the future holds. So um, for me, I, I think there's several possible futures that I would love to see come out of where we're at right now. And I think um, a lot of that has to do with shifting the balance of power and so coming back to this idea of power that's um, so uh, pervasive on, on the Radical AI podcast, but um, taking the power away from the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Jeff Bezos and instead shifting it to um, the people and really letting them decide what it is that they want and need from this technology and um, instead changing the narrative that technology is this like capitalistic gained exploit 
But um, instead of it being that, technology can be this wonderful, amazing tool that helps uplift humanity and helps us become the best society that we want to be. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean having uh, technological interventions in every single aspect of our life, because then I see us becoming like the humans in WALL-E that are just so supported by technology that we're not even really human anymore. Um, Shout out to like addictive design and uh, persuasive design, because I think that that there's a lot of uh, negative places we can go with technology in that realm too. But instead, um, us still remaining human, whatever that means, and then having these technological tools that really uplift a lot of the things that we already want to do. So so tools that help us be more creative, but don't replace our creativity, or tools that help us be more efficient, but don't replace our jobs, or um, tools that help predict the future, whether it's uh, weather or sports or even uh, harmful disasters that are going to happen in the world without, uh, you know, predicting things that are inherently unpredictable, like uh, people's risk to commit a crime. And, and then this can also expand into other realms like environmental sustainability and human kindness and empathy. And I think there's a lot of realms of, of humanness that we haven't tapped into in terms of technological interventions that I hope in the future we do in an intentional Mm. way. (laughs) Yeah, um, and I totally agree with all of that, um, except for take my jobs, take the jobs. I mean, the the, the BS jobs, uh, take them away. I don't want them. Um, (laughs) But still, I kind of have to reconcile that with, um, you know, I don't want to be floating around like a blob in uh, Pixar's (laughs) Wally or anything like that. So we have to somehow uh make sense out of that situation you know where we find meaning and and how we can drive our economy without jobs um did you have like the pessimistic view like how how could this work if we didn't have ai ethics oh geez Um, Uh, i try to not think of this one too much but it's probably important to tap into for motivation yeah um if we just keep going as is right now without intervention from ethics and the social sciences, I see um, technology, especially AI, perpetuating the problems that exist in society to the point where they are no longer solvable. And so um, issues of racism and sexism and uh, oppression and everything in between, um, things that have existed so long that are the worst parts of society, I see those being uh, enacted and encoded into technology and perpetuated and furthered, um, unfortunately, to the point of no return. Mm. Yeah, and I guess a lot of that is to do with intention and bias and things creeping in. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to segue to a bizarre and a big can of worms question. Um, so ready? Okay. Um, can AI be conscious? <laughs> oh my gosh. I love this question so much. Um, I am going to say yes, because uh, I don't think that humans have fundamentally decided or agreed upon what it means for us to be conscious yet. And so uh, until we decide or are able to uh, scientifically prove what it means for us to be conscious and agree on it, 
uh, I don't think that we will have the ability to say that an AI system is not conscious, especially for those who think that uh, consciousness exists in a place that is unobservable. The, the dualists who think that consciousness exists outside of the physical world, but is instead like an inner feeling that we can never tap into in someone else's body. I think that um, those people in particular probably already think that AI has a consciousness because there's no way for us to know. <laughs> well, that's a very good answer. I'm going to put a lid back on that uh, can of worms and then we'll maybe come back to that another time. Uh, so thank you so much for your time, uh, Jess. If people want to follow you, um, contact you, find out about the podcast, how can they do that? Yes, um, you can check out my website, jessiejsmith.com. That's J-E-S-S-I-E. -S -S -E. You can follow me on Twitter at underscore jessiejsmith underscore because I have a super generic name, so you got to use those underscores. Um, you can always uh, look at the, the Radical AI podcast at radicalai.org or shoot me an email at jessiejsmith01 because I'm generic at gmail.com. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks very much for um, being on the show, Jess, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks very much for listening. And thanks again to uh, Jesse, uh, or Jess, sorry, uh, for spending the time with us. Um, I have a confession to make. It's taken a quite a while to get this episode out, so I apologize for that, because um, I had a great conversation with Jess, and my audio was terribly recorded, so it didn't actually come out and wasn't usable. So I don't know if you've noticed, or if it was really, really hard to listen to, um, because of that fact, but I had to then re-record my whole part of my conversation with Jess, uh, react it, re-record it, uh, make sense out of it. So um, hopefully it wasn't too garbled and confusing and my responses were somewhat like the ones that um, we had uh, when we spoke uh, before. And um, yeah, so tell me what you think. Uh, it was a bit of a monumental um, process, so sorry about that again. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation with um, Jess, so thanks very much for spending the time with us. I think obviously the educational stuff really resonated with me because I think um, it's really great. Um, her ideas around kind of just imbuing um, example projects, bringing projects to life, um, using some of like real world humanities and ethical quandaries and bring those into the classroom. It's a really good idea. Uh, and that, I guess, is somewhat um, to do with co-designing systems and things like that. Um, and it's just really fun just to talk about some of these things like AI consciousness and, um, you know, creativity and value. So I hope uh, we have a chance to speak again and, and get to grips with some more of these bizarre and interesting things so thanks um yeah and again if you want to support the podcast check out uh, more things on patreon.com forward slash machine ethics and thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time bye <laughs>